from John 20, 19 through 31. Listen for God's word for you. It was still the first day of the week, that evening when the disciples were behind closed doors because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities. Jesus came and he stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he, said, after he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. And when disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Thomas. The one called Didymus, which means the twin. One of the twelve wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, look, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the nail marks on his hands, put the finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days, his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and he stood among them and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. And Thomas responded to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus replied, Do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. And then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence. Signs that aren't recorded in this scroll. But these things are written so that you will believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. I want to congratulate you. You have made it. You have made it to Low Sunday, one of the most sparsely attended Sundays of all the year. You've done it. We pull out all the stops for Easter and then we take them away the second week. Tom goes on vacation and you get stuck with me. So if I had a stack full of Gary Bucks, which we give the kids to give candy, I would give you Gary Bucks. And then you can harass Gary for candy. You're more than welcome this afternoon or this or later today, if you see Gary, to ask him for some candy and tell him I said it was okay. <laughs> Have you ever had one of those roller coaster weeks where it starts out with so much promise and hope and energy and then somehow deteriorates into stress or worry and even tragedy and then ultimately transforms into something different still? You come out on the other end of it a little shell-shocked, not knowing what to believe or feel or think about anything. I would say that description accurately describes my experience of becoming a father. <laughs> excitement waiting for the day to arrive, excitement about naming her and can't make up her mind about a middle name, wondering what she looks like because she looks terrifying and skeletal, and all of those sonograms. <laughs> but no one told me about the week-long ulcer I would have upon her birth. 
No one told me about the enormous amounts of worry and tears I would have when she couldn't keep warm or was in the NICU or was having issue with the calcium in her blood. Unfortunately, everything has cleared up. She's a great, wonderful, crying, pooping, peeing baby. <laughs> but there's these moments when you go from hope to fear and worry back to hope. You don't quite know what to make of it. And so think of those early apostles, those early disciples. What a journey they've been on over the course of that holy week. It began two weeks ago when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that triumphal entry, he gathered in that upper room with his disciples and they celebrated the Passover. In doing so, he instituted that new practice of communion and he gave his disciples a new commandment to follow him. He was betrayed by Judas and arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was on trial before the Jerusalem Council and then turned over to the Romans to be beaten and to be mocked. The people of Jerusalem demanded his death at the hands of Pilate and the Roman governor washed his hands of Jesus and turned him over to be crucified. He suffered and he died and the earth was dark. Holy people arose from the graves, we are told, and the temple veil was torn into two. And then on Sunday, they said the first day of the week, merely a week after he rode into Jerusalem in triumph, and then he died. On that Sunday, there were women going to the tomb. When they got there, they found the stone rolled away, the guards gone, and they had this encounter with the risen Jesus. And they went back and they told the apostles that he had risen. And soon after that, on that very day, later that night, he appeared to them. But for some reason, Thomas was not there. He was gone. The others, they had already seen the nails in Jesus' hand and the scar on his side. They had the Holy Spirit breathed into them. But Thomas had those defiant words, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, put my finger in the wound, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. At least he knows what he needs to believe, right? I envy him because there are times in my life where I want to believe, but I don't know what it's going to take to help me believe. At least he knows what it's going to take. So call him a skeptic. Call Thomas a doubter if you want. But let's be honest. If Thomas missed that first meeting with the resurrected Jesus because he was out getting the apostles their takeout lunch, I have a hard time being mad at the guy for wanting what they had. And frankly, Neither does Jesus. Jesus doesn't get frustrated with Thomas. Notice in this story, Jesus never actually condemns Thomas. He offers proof. He calls Thomas from unbelief to belief. Thomas is just a guy who knows what he needs in order to believe in a resurrected Jesus. He shouldn't be pitied. He shouldn't be looked down on. He shouldn't be scorned. In fact, I think Thomas might be a model for many of us modern believers who struggle understanding what it's going to take for us to believe. Just like Thomas, we had not seen the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. We've not been able to place our hands in the scars on his hands or in his side. Do you catch that part of Scripture? He wants to put his hand in inside Jesus' scar. 
And while Jesus's, Thomas' request is reasonable, it's a bit cryptic. My senior year of high school, my grandfather was really ill, and my church decided they were going to take a mission trip over the Christmas break. They were going to go to Juarez, Mexico, and build a house. And my parents asked me to not go because my father was very ill, and we didn't know how, our grandfather was very ill, and we didn't know how long he was, frankly, going to live. And so they said, let's stay here for Christmas. And I did. And I remember after Christmas when my friends got back, we met them in the parking lot. And they came off the church van, as often you do at the end of mission trip, just laughing under this euphoria. Even though you wanted to strangle each other the previous week, something happens in that last hour and everybody gets along. And there's all these inside jokes and made-up words. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. And I realize I don't get any of them. I wanted to participate in these jokes. I wanted to get it. They're my friends, and yet they've had this week-long experience in another country I didn't have. And I just couldn't be a part of it because I didn't have the experiences they had. I think that is a perfectly natural human response, to want to experience what others have experienced, that experience that has transformed them. We need it to verify what we know to be true. We need it as evidence. And Thomas wanted nothing more than that. He wanted what the rest of the disciples received, an encounter with the risen Jesus. So maybe he's a doubter. Maybe he's a skeptic. He needs the experience, the proof, the evidence that the others have received. His big error was just simply not being there the first time. If Palm Sunday is for the dreamers and those who like to celebrate, if Easter Sunday is for those who have a boundless amount of hope, then maybe this Sunday after Easter is a Sunday that we can set aside for skeptics and doubters. For those of us who have a hard time ever finding enough evidence to believe. We find ourselves often crying like that father in Mark whose son couldn't speak where he says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help the part of me that cannot believe. We want to believe. We want to feel like those people who seem to have it all together. We want their confidence. We want their level of assurance. But many of us struggle to find a comfortable place in our faith. We are told by others, by generations before us, to believe in things that seem unbelievable. And we have no evidence to investigate these things. The faith has come to us by word of mouth, by song, and by story. Sometimes, like Thomas, we hear people talk about their powerful experience with Jesus. Times when they felt his presence near, challenging and comforting them. And we wonder, where is my experience? Why do I not feel that? Where is my experience with the risen Lord? Why don't I feel supremely confident with this overriding sense of presence of God in my life? Because in our modern world, there's so many things to compete with belief. Christianity has been caught up in this ridiculous argument with science for much of the last 400 years. We've treated the Bible, a book full of poetry, prophecy, polemics, and stories as though it was written like a history and science book. 
And the argument has been controlled by conservatives within our own faith that have insisted that in order to believe, one must ignore the conclusions of science and accept the physical world as described in the Bible. So we either have to reject the literalist teachings of the Bible and live without mystery and without God, or we must reject the conclusions of modern science and cling to the Bible as God's little answer book. Either one of those is terribly comfortable for me. So let's be honest this morning. Who Jesus Christ is and how he works in our lives is a mystery. And we have this innate desire, this desire built into us that we need to explore and solve mysteries. Faith itself is a mystery. It is a mystery of the heart that our minds are trying to solve. I love those words. A commentator said this week, faith is a mystery of the heart that the mind wants to solve. So mystery, it can be full of doubt, skepticism. It can also be full of faith and hope. Those things can and do coexist together in one place. So can't there be a place in church for doubt? Can't there be a place in church for skepticism or mystery? We've created an idol out of certainty. How many of us have felt unworthy of God or unworthy of being called a Christian because we don't feel as certain as other people feel? We're encouraged to put up this front, portraying our faith as this unshakable mountain of certainty, as though we have never had enormous nights full of doubt, or days when we just can't wrap our heads around it all. Notice, Thomas, even with the testimony of people that he had known and loved and lived with every day for three years, a group of people that shared every moment with him and with Jesus, a group of people that he knew, they knew, Jesus, even their testimony about Jesus was difficult for him to accept. Acting supremely confident about your faith or desiring a state of being where you are 100% certain about what you believe and who God is and what God requires of you is not a requirement of being a Christian. Paul tells us this very carefully. In his letter to the Philippians, he says to us, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. He doesn't say work out your salvation in supreme confidence. It's fear and trembling. Because God is the one, this is Paul's word, God is the one who enables you to want and to actually live out God's good purposes. It is God that has placed within you a desire to believe. This desire to love God and others, God has placed that in you. True faith can coexist with doubt. Because here's the key. We want to believe. That's why we're here. And that desire has been placed in you by God. We want to believe in a God that loves us so much that God created everything we see and everything we don't see and called it good. We want to believe in a God that loves us so much 
And God loves us so consistently that God is invading our lives, calling us to new possibilities of love and generosity. We want to believe in a God that loves us so much that God sent God's own Son, Jesus. And that Jesus loved us so much and cared so thoroughly about His cause that He was willing to die to see it through. We want to believe in a God that created us for the sole purpose of glorifying and enjoying God forever. We want to believe those things. Now, there's some that have this thing, and it's the gift of faith, the spiritual gift of faith. These individuals possess a faith that requires no evidence. And even in the face of enormous pain and suffering, they still know that God is with them. And I thank God for people like that. You're blind and you're passionate about your faith and that is something I envy. You are an inspiration to all who get to talk to you and interact with you because you inspire us and encourage us. But not all of us have that spiritual gift. We struggle on a daily basis to know what to believe. And at times, we just cannot find enough evidence to lead us to conclude that Jesus Christ had indeed risen from the grave. We're like Thomas. Unless I see the nail marks on his hand, put my finger in those wounds, and put my hand into his side, I won't. I can't believe. I want to. But I can't. I have done plenty of dumb and dangerous things in my life. And one that I can remember particularly was a time in college, a group of friends of mine uh, borrowed some foot-powered go-karts that my college had purchased for a special event at school. These were just silly little go-karts you could drive, but you pedaled them. They didn't have any engines on them. And so we just decided, hey, it's East Tennessee. There's a lot of hills. Let's just go take them and ride them everywhere at 3 a.m. in the morning. And so that's what we did. And we rode all over the place. We raced each other. But I remember the very last thing we did with them is we went to this really long, curving hill out in the middle of nowhere that was completely black. And we decided we were going to ride these down it. But the problem was we couldn't see 10 feet in front of our face. And we kept racing, hoping that the road would stay in front of us. And fortunately, no one got hurt, even though a friend of mine nearly hit a cow that had escaped from a pasture that wandered onto the road. But we just rode on these pitch black roads with blind faith that something horrible wasn't waiting for us to crash into it. That's the trick about faith, isn't it? It isn't a result of a long, carefully thought out, carefully investigated process. It is, in fact, at times, a leap. That's why we say faith is a gift from God. Because we know that there is no amount, amount of investigation or exploration that will lead us to the logical conclusion that Christ is risen and Jesus is Lord. That's something we just have to accept on faith. It takes something completely else, something completely unexpected and outside of ourselves. What a psychologist would call second-order change, change that comes outside of ourselves, that is often unexplainable. Faith, this desire to believe and have hope in things that we have very little evidence to support, this is a gift from God. And God is big enough and patient enough and loving enough to handle our doubts and skepticism. 
So what is Jesus' response to Thomas's doubt and skepticism? Jesus responds by giving him exactly what he needs to believe. Jesus doesn't scold Thomas. He lets him touch his hands and his side. He gives him what he needs to believe in his resurrection. And as a result, Thomas gives one of the most powerful testimonies in the entire New Testament when he falls at Jesus' feet and says to him, My Lord and my God, out of the mouth of someone who struggles with believing comes a powerful testament of faith. How does Jesus handle our doubt? Jesus is in the business of giving us what we need. You're here on a Sunday morning in worship. It's obvious. You want to believe in something bigger than yourself. This desire to know God and want to believe is given to you. It's a gift. John Calvin, the great founder of the Presbyterian stream of Christianity, said that that desire alone is evidence of God's presence in your life. The desire, this faith, gives us eyes to see the evidence that is all around us. That absent of faith won't convince us. So when we have the eyes of faith, the gift that God has given us, we can look at simple things like someone showing kindness to a stranger and see that is evidence of our resurrected Lord. Faith allows us to see a church making 10,000 meals for people in need as evidence that Jesus Christ is indeed risen. Faith allows us to see the love in a child's eye and catch a glimmer of God's love for us. Faith gives us eyes to see evidence of God's love all around us. So I say to you this morning, Jesus Christ can handle your doubt. Jesus Christ can handle your skepticism, your unbelief. Jesus responds to our doubt by giving us what we need. So don't be guilt-ridden if your doubt or unbelief seems to overcome you at times or you don't know what to make of it. The greatest saints in the history of the church, from Mother Teresa to St. Augustine, from Paul to Thomas, all struggled to solve the mystery of faith. If you require more evidence to help you believe, to encourage you, ask for it. That's what Thomas did. He asked for it. And we know Jesus' response. He blesses us and he gives us what we need. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.